0: Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle, back from my holliers, which were not quite as scorchio uh, when I was in County Clare as it is in Dublin right now. But And I'm not, I swear I'm not going to complain about this weather, as some people are doing. But Jesus, is anyone else lying in bed at three o'clock in the morning, sweating buckets, trying to get back to sleep? Some of us are just not made for these temperatures. Well, if you believe the weather app, which I don't, it's a dirty, rotten liar most of the time. It's going to rain on Saturday, so normal service will resume. But I hope you are enjoying it, getting out for swims and sitting in your garden if you're lucky enough to have one or on your balcony. And just people watching, I found that's been lovely because everybody looks at least 50% more attractive in this sunshine, I've decided. It's like Love Island around here, but with much funnier Uh, banter and more appropriate swimwear thank God. In a moment we're going to be bringing you a chat I did with former state pathologist Mary Cassidy that was part of our big night in series last year but first I wanted to talk about a couple of sports stories. The first one is about Norway's beach handball team who were fined this week for Improper clothing after they wore shorts instead of bikini bottoms during Sunday's bronze medal game against Spain at the European Beach Handball Championships in Bulgaria. Now, on the women's podcast, we wouldn't normally be paying too much attention to beach handball in Bulgaria or anywhere else in the world, except for the reason that the Norway team were fined because the International Handball Federation apparently requires women to wear bikini bottoms. And I'm quoting them directly now. Bikini bottoms with a close fit and cut on an upward angle toward the top of the leg. And apparently the sides of the bikini bottoms must be no more than 10 centimetres deep. So what are the men wearing, you ask? Well, the men, of course, can wear shorts that go down to within 10 centimetres of their knees, as long as they're not too baggy. So there you go. When the Norwegian women wanted to play in shorts because bikini bottoms are too revealing, they were threatened with fines if they wore anything covering more than 10 centimetres of their bottoms. And as Deirdre Falvey wrote in the Irish Times this week, it's 2021, it's not April 1st. Does beach handball consider itself a real sport sport? Um, she quoted Martine Weffler, one of the Norwegian players, as saying, I don't see why we can't play in shorts. With so much body shaming and stuff like that these days, you should be able to wear a little bit more when you play. And the International Handball Federation told the New York Times on Tuesday that its focus was on the Olympics, not uniforms, and that it hadn't received official complaints previously, which has turned out to be wrong because the New York Times has won the letters when Norway officially complained before. And the Federation spokeswoman, Jessica Rockstrow, said, Globally, we know other countries like to play in bikinis, for example, especially in South America. Uh, She doesn't know the reason for the rules. Oh, I wonder what that could be. But she says we're looking into it internally. And quoting Deirdre Falvey again, who wrote a great piece about it, she says, As well, they might look into it internally. The sport suddenly... Having acquired the flavour of lap dancing, the European Handball Federation said it was simply enforcing rules set by the International Federation, only following orders. The whole Farrago is risable. They might as well say, yes, we call ourselves a sport and have a federation and all that important, guff. But really what we want is to provide a bunch of young, fit women jumping about with their butts wobbling for your delectation, gentlemen. Obviously the overlords of beach handball. I'm imagining them to be white, male, balding, pudgy and leering. Why ruin my perception by checking? It's irrelevant to the issue after all. Apparently they have trashed the reputation of their sport, which will upset the athletes, but it doesn't matter much to most of us. As a sports fan friend observed today, bit of a joke of an Olympic sport anyway, really, why not tennis on sand too or javelin underwater? But anyway, that whole beach uh, volleyball and handball thing will run and run. And hopefully women will not be forced to wear stupid things like bikinis if they don't want to. I mean, it kind of brings me back to all the girls, most of the girls in this country having to wear skirts when they go to school, which is just ridiculous as well. I, I just hope those days are coming to an end now much more edifying. Is the fact that there are only hours to go until our Irish team joins the parade at the opening event of the Tokyo Olympic Games. And of course, for various reasons which you know about, so I won't bother going into here, they're going to be very different Olympic Games this time. But leaving that poxy buzz killing virus aside for a minute, I just wanted to talk about some of the women who are going to be representing Ireland in Tokyo. There are over 60 of them and They're going to be representing us across all sorts of disciplines. If you go to olympics.ie, you can find out all about them and when you can tune into their various uh, events and cheer for them. I think they've done incredibly well to make the grade, and we wanted to name them here. Some names you'll recognize, some you won't, but they are all legends in our book. So, famous sailing name, Annalise Murphy. And then in rowing, you've got Fiona Murta, Emer Lam, Aoife Casey, Aileen Crowley, Tara Hanlon, Sunita Puspur. Monica Dukarska, Margaret Kremen and Afrik Kyo. All the hockey women, there's too many to mention, but a couple of them we've had on the podcast. Captain Katie Mullen, Anna O'Flanagan and Chloe Watkins. Good luck to them. We've also had Natalia Coyle from the Modern Pentathlon on the podcast before. Uh, Aoife O'Rourke and Kelly Harrington are part of the boxing team. Carolyn Hayes will triathlon. Leona Maguire, Stephanie Meadow for golf. Lydia Gurley, Shannon McCurley, Emily Kay with cycling. Megan Fletcher will be representing us in judo. Megan Ryan in gymnastics. There's loads of women for athletics. Fanula McCormick, Kira McGeehan. Eva Cook, Sarah Lavin, Sarah Healy, Sophie Becker, Schiefer Cleric-Butner, Michelle Finn, Eilish Flanagan, Phil Healy, Nadia Power. They're all in the athletics team. Then we've got Ellen Walsh, Mona McSharry, Danielle Hill in swimming, Tanya Watson in diving, uh, Heike Holstein and Sarah Ennis in the equestrian team. So good luck to all of you, Team Ireland, all brilliant women who are representing us at the Olympics. We'll be cheering you on. Now, Mary Cassidy spoke to me back in October as part of our big nights in and we're going to be bringing you a few more of those conversations during the summer. Professor Cassidy originally worked in medicine in her native Scotland and told me in this conversation that she found it very disturbing at the beginning, people being ill and then dying. And she couldn't really cope with that. uh, So she moved into people who were just dead. And from that slightly unlikely beginning, Cassidy went on to become one of Ireland's best known state pathologists, succeeding Professor John Harbison in the role in 2002. From 2004 until 2018, her image was synonymous with breaking news of high profile murder cases from gangland shootings and stabbings to road traffic accidents and suicides. She has performed thousands of postmortems and dealt with hundreds of murders. Two years ago, she retired and moved from Dublin to London with her husband, and while she was there, she wrote a fascinating book called Beyond the Tape, in which she shares her remarkable personal journey from working class Scotland into the world of forensic pathology, describing in candid detail the intricate processes central to solving modern crime. It was a great conversation I had with her, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here she is, Mary Cassidy.
1: Mary, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Thanks for inviting me on tonight. It's a great. I mean, it's it's like a night out, but I don't even have to get dressed up for it. It's brilliant. <laughs> well, you look very
2: elegant there. And I didn't mention your book, which is behind me. I don't know if you can see it on the piano, uh, Beyond the Tape. So everyone should go out and buy it because it is an amazing read. Mary, we're so glad that you've joined us from your home near London, I think is where you live, mm-hmm. uh, close to Ascot.
1: That's right.
2: Yep, a fancy yep. place where all the posh people go for their races.
1: Yeah, I've got a hat especially for the races, <laughs> you know.
2: <laughs> and I just wanted to ask you, first of all, your job that you retired from two years ago it still hasn't been filled, and I just wondered why that is. Why that's such a difficult position to fill? Or have you any thoughts on that?
1: Well, I'm such a hard act to follow. You see, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's it's a it's a worldwide problem actually because. Over the last few years, the numbers of people going into pathology has, has dwindled. And as a result of that, because forensic pathologists are only a very, very small percentage of hospital pathologists who go into it. And so there has been, there's very few forensic pathologists, again, world, worldwide. And so the same problem is happening in Belfast. It's happened in Glasgow. So all over are having the same problems. So it's not that you can't replace me. Yes, you can. <laughs> I mean, I suppose what people
2: might, I'm sure they ask you all the time, it is such a grim job. It is such a, you know, a job where you're having to deal with things that many, many people are completely turned off by. So I suppose what we want to find out tonight is why you, Mary Casty were so interested and passionate about that job, as you have been for a very long time. And it's quite the story because you grew up in very working class Glasgow background, uh, with a really hard-working father who I know was a big inspiration to you. Tell us a little bit about what shaped you in those early uh, years growing up uh, near Glasgow.
1: Well, I mean, I, I thought I'd come from a normal home, like it, we all do, because you, you, you're you just looking around you and you're seeing, you know, your friends. I mean, you're, when you're small, I mean, you know, anything is a, a bonus. You know, uh, the fact that I was... Healthy, and I went to school, and I didn't think that my life was that unusual until probably I was about 10 or 11. And I can remember one of my friends saying, We're all meeting and we're going out shopping. And I said, Oh, I can't go on a Saturday. And they said, Well, why can't you go on a Saturday? I said, Oh, I work. And they would look at me as if to say, <laughs> Are they putting you up chimneys? What are they doing with you? And I just thought, Oh, so other people don't do this. They don't help out in the, in the family business. So I then thought, oh, maybe we are a bit odd, you know, I, I didn't, but I didn't think anything of it. And um, so I was always brought up with a work ethic and I always believed that you have to work to, to achieve what you want. Nobody's going to hand you anything on a plate. And my father was instrumental in that because he had had to leave school when he was a lad, a young lad. Because his father died when he was very young. We've got a terrible history in our family of heart disease. <laughs> I'm just hanging on in there. I just keep on going, right, my dad died when he was in his 50s. I've passed that. You know, that's another milestone. <laughs> you know, just keep going, keep going. Um, so he had to leave home, uh, leave um, school at a very early age. So he was, and he was, I think that almost destroyed him because He was obviously an intelligent man and he just thought if I'd had the opportunity, I could have been whatever I wanted to be. So he kept saying that to us. Education is the key. You don't want to end up having to do what I do for a living. You don't want to have to work very hard for a living. And so that was so he pushed education and nobody in our family had ever gone any further than secondary school. Uh, and when I came home and said, oh, I'm going to university, and I don't know where that came from. <laughs> As usual, I don't think too much, I just come up with things and then I go, oh, mm, now I have to do something, I have to act on that now that I've committed myself. And he was just delighted that the fact that I would go on, I mean, I didn't even think about, we, we've got no money. <laughs> you know? am I going to do it? Do you have to pay to go to university? I, where'll I get the bus fares? I had not a scooby when I decided to do that. Mary, Um, you have to say that again, not a scooby, scooby.
2: not a scooby. I'm going to, by the way, I'm probably going to join in my really bad Scottish accent tonight. Just forgive me. But I I didn't have a scooby. Is that good? (laughs) Very well done. (laughs) Thank you. But tell me this though, Mary, because One thing I thought, well, there's so many interesting things in your book, and we're going to talk about all of them. But one line that jumped out at me was, I didn't really like school because I didn't like children, even when I was one. That's about that.
1: (laughs) Many people will be like, What the hell? I just didn't like children. I mean, and I, I mean, bless me, I I have two fantastic children. I don't know how that happened. (laughs) Well, I actually do, but that's, we'll not go into that. But, I mean, can, I had, if you, like, you can like, <laughs> A biology lesson as well. Um, <laughs> I I mean, I just I and, and even now, I mean, my children, they've, unfortunately, they've inherited that gene. They don't like children either. <laughs> but they used to say, and I used to, my my worst night of the year was Halloween, because children would come to your door. You sound like a Roald Dal evil villain. That's nice. <laughs> I would lock myself in the bedroom and the kids would be saying, "Mom, mum, there's somebody at the door. You have to give them sweets. And I'm going, no, I'm not coming out. I'm not coming out. Send your father. Your father's good with children. <laughs> He'll deal with them. So, no, I just never like children. I say, but you I don't have any
2: reason why. You don't know where that came oh, from.
1: No, I just don't like
2: them. <laughs> but when you had your own children, I know we're jumping well ahead, but when you did have your own children, did you
1: like them? Not for... Well, they, they didn't do very much for a long time, you see. <laughs> I think babies are very boring because they just lie there and, you know, you have to look after them. And I, No, I did look after them. I didn't neglect the poor things. But, I mean, they weren't very interesting until they could start to talk. And then I found them a bit more interesting. But even then, it was only when they got into their teens and their 20s that I thought, oh, you're nice people. <laughs>
2: Oh, yeah. Okay. well, I just think the honesty is very refreshing because it's not something a woman is sort of allowed to say in in a weird way. It's kind of like, no, we should all be this very nurturing matriarchal. And you're clearly not.
1: No, no, no. Uh, And all my friends and colleagues would say, because, you know, when mum comes in and she's got the new baby, they all go, no, don't give it to her. (laughs) Pass them around to somebody else, but don't stop at her. Yeah, because everybody knows that I'm not very good with them.
2: Okay, well, I went off on a bit of a tangent there, but I love it because I just just love people who talk about stuff that nobody else does. And that's something particularly that you do. Um, So your dad was very sick as well as working very hard. You talked about the heart disease and he died when you were a teenager. But before he died, you had sort of told him this news. I'm going to go to university and I'm going to study medicine, which was a big
1: deal. He died quite soon afterwards. Yeah, because that was me coming up to. I was in Scottish education so it was the hires not the leaving cert but the set you know the equivalent and I was just coming up to the hires and this was why I had to to choose what I was going to do and before I sat the hires he he died so it was only within probably weeks of me you know announcing to the world what I was what I decided I was going to do with my life Um, and as I say he was just delighted and he was really very sick so he was having a lot of visitors so Every time somebody came to visit me, would go, and Mary is going to be a doctor. And I and I was thinking, I'm never going to get out of this now because half of the bloody country knows that I want to be a doctor. <laughs> I can't back out now. But as I say, at least he went to his grave happy knowing that his daughter was going to go and do something in education that that he hadn't had a chance to do
2: and And one of the brilliant parts of your story then he did he did sorry sadly die, and I know that must be a, still a great loss because he was such an influential person in your life. but you went to be a doctor, but it turns out that being a doctor in the sense of in a hospital healing people live real life people, especially children um
1: wasn't for you. Tell us about that <laughs> no um i I just find it very difficult. and the strange thing is when you think about where <laughs> and what direction I went. I found it very disturbing, people being very, very ill and then dying. Yeah. And I couldn't really cope with that. And I used to, when I was a junior doctor, even, and I would come in and I would, I would say, Oh, where's Mr. Smith? And they'd go, Oh, we died during the night. And I was distraught. I was thinking, Well, what did you do? Or <laughs> what did you not do? And it would be sent to the consultants. What's happened? Why is this man died? And I just couldn't get my head round why, you know, people came into hospital and then died. And I, I mean, even to this day, I can remember um, when I, once I'd gone into pathology and I remember somebody speaking to a family and they said, but my, my, my dad was in intensive care. Does that not mean he gets better treatment? So why did he die? And I thought, Aww. "Do you know, I'm with you. <laughs> I'm with you in that one. That's what I used to think as well, but now I know better. That's so, awful. I know. Yeah, I can and, see the logic of that, though. That's yeah, so Sad. I know, and and that that's why I used to think, gosh. And that, so I find it very, very difficult to to deal with that side of things, and and that's why I thought, you know, I'm not going to be very much used to people, you know, if I'm if I'm in a corner crying every time somebody doesn't make it through, and that's when I decided, look, I have to think about how what else I can do in medicine. And luckily, in medicine, there is something for everyone. And I mean, if if you think about what's happening today in the world with the coronavirus and all, you know, all the, the, the scientific research going into that, I think nowadays, if I was if I was at school and deciding what I wanted to do, that's what I would do now. I'd go into really? research. Um, because I think that is fascinating. But when you're 15, 16, you don't know what's what's out there in the world. I had no no idea. I mean, I loved maths and I loved physics. And the nuns had said to me, well, you can teach, you can be a nurse, you can be a mother or a nun. And I thought, "Mm, I don't really fancy any one of those. Uh, And that's when I came up and I said, well, I'm going to be a doctor. And they went, oh, my goodness, you're not supposed to do things like that. That's not that's not girly or womanly. Um, So I but we got no careers advice at all. I remember one girl coming back who'd left and gone to university and she said, I'm doing maths at at university and um, I'm going to teach. And I thought, is that all you can do, really? Is is there nothing else out there? And nowadays, of course, children now, thankfully, have a bit more insight into what they can do and they do get proper careers advice. But I mean, once I'd said I was going to be a doctor, they just washed their hands off me and they thought, well, let her go on with it. You know, she'll never make it, She'll, she'll not last. And, and, and I, did. <laughs> I
2: Maddie, did why do you think just going a bit into your type of personality and maybe your upbringing maybe the fact that you were out working for whether you were buying sweets with the money you were getting some kind of a wage from quite an early age do you think that contributed to you not just saying oh this is the way it has to be and I'll just follow that where do you think that came from it was it a personality thing or was it a nurture thing
1: well I think um this is, I mean, remember I was I was born in the 50s. I hate to admit it, but I was. My mother's family, her her family had been decimated in the war. All the men had more or less disappeared. And so it was all the my mother and her sisters, and they were extremely strong women. And they were the ones who just said, you know, you can you can women can do whatever they want to do and whatever they have to do. And because they had, you know, been in the land army, they had had to take over in factories and things when the men had gone off. So they thought they knew that they could do anything a man could do. And so they just kept on saying to us, you can do whatever you want to do. Don't, don't you know, don't, don't let anybody say you can't do it because you're a woman. Of course you can do it. We've been doing it for years. And so they were the ones who were just bolstering me up and saying, of course you can do it. And I was thinking, do you think so? maybe not but okay we'll have a go uh so there was always somebody behind me pushing me forward anyway so going into pathology because
2: you do talk about even before you're uh, realizing that actually healing real life sick people wasn't going to be for you going in to see your first cadaver as as a student and wanting having this feeling of wanting to methodically slowly you know, dissect and whatever, I'm not going to get the lingo right, but whatever you were going to do. Um, and, and other people, you you said you can tell a lot about someone, how they approach the dead body and what kind of medicine they should do, because you did want to do it quite carefully and slowly, but other yeah. people were rushing in to get it over with. Yeah.
1: And it, I mean, and it's true. They should really have. I mean, they should have psychologists in the anatomy department and just watch the the the, the students clustered around a table. And they would soon get an idea of what they, where they're all going to go and where they're going to end up. And it's a bit like careers advice at school. Perhaps at that point they should be coming in and sort of kind of saying, "Excuse me, dear, can can we have a little chat? I think this is maybe where where you should be heading." Because I was. I, at that time I didn't even realize it at that time but I was fascinated by delving into the body because I hadn't done biology at school so (laughs) I mean it was all a big mystery to me I knew it was all in there somewhere but I had no idea where where any bit was in any particular order so to me it was just wonderful to see it and I couldn't understand why these people were just sort of saying oh let's get through this you know you know if we get out here we'll you know we'll have an early lunch and I was going but are we not supposed to be learning when we're doing this so that bit's when I did anatomy, I'm still a bit fuzzy. <laughs> things like arms and legs. Mm. Uh, thank, thank heavens we have anthropologists to help me out when it comes to bones and things. But uh yes, but so I, I I always had that from the very beginning, I think, this fascination of what was going on inside, not what you could see in the outside, but how it was all working inside.
2: So tell us, Mary, when you did get into forensic pathology, was it a light bulb
1: moment? Was it like, oh. This is amazing. Immediately. Uh, And I, I, I was like everybody else at that particular time, because forensic pathology had a terrible reputation. No, you know, you didn't go into that. You know, most people, you know, bright things are going, I'm going to be a brain surgeon, I'm going to do this. And I go, nobody would ever say I'm going to be a forensic pathologist. Nobody even knew what it was, really. I didn't even really know what it was. But I knew that there were some deaths that occurred, that disappeared off to this strange little place in the in the literally in the dead centre of Glasgow into the city mortuary there, but nobody ever talked about it. Nobody ever went there, and when I was go- just when I would finished my training in pathology and I um, I was thinking now where do I go because now I'm going to be looking for consultant posts. You know I've I've got to the top of the the tree here, and um, I thought I might have to end up moving and if I do I might have to do some of these forensic cases and I had never seen anything we dealt mainly with people who had died in in hospital who died from heart conditions from their cancer or whatever I had never seen anybody who died in a road traffic accident I had never seen a, a, a suicide I had never seen i never seen a murder <laughs>
2: say it again Mary
1: a murder <laughs> sorry <laughs> I know it's not funny, but sorry. I had never seen anything of this before. And I can remember saying to the professor in the department, "Can I go to forensic medicine for two weeks? And he was going, oh, do people don't go to forensic medicine? No, 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 no. And I said, but I want to go. I just want to go and see it. And he said, leave it with me. And he phoned me about a couple of hours later and he said, um, have you thought about a career in forensic medicine? And I said, no, <laughs> good Lord, no. And I thought, gosh, the man hates me. He's going to send me off. It was like going to Siberia. You're going to forensic pathology, and I was going, oh no, please don't send me, please, please let me come back. And he said, right, well, go go for two weeks and see how you get on. And the day I went, I just walked into that mortuary and I thought, ah, they don't tell you about this. This is why they keep this a secret because it's wonderful. There's, you know. And I was seeing things I'd never seen before, witnessed things, and I just thought, "This is where I was meant to be." And thank, thank heavens, I said to them, "I want to go for a couple of weeks," and I never left. They couldn't get rid of me. And, no, no, I'm not leaving. I'm staying. And I just, I just thought, "This is what it's all about for me. I've, I've found my niche." So then,
2: tell me about uh, Professor John Harbison, and your sort of getting to know him, and the fact that in ireland like john harbison is someone everyone here will recognize the name because he's a celebrity he's someone we all know oh and harbison has arrived on the scene and da, 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 da. but it's not like that in scotland no and he when you first met him he was telling you like i'm very everyone knows me
1: here and you couldn't kind of believe it no i mean i mean i was used to i mean I, as i say i came into forensic in 1985 and it's a small a small world and so we all, we, we're all familiar with all of the um, forensic pathologists in Scotland, England, Wales, Northern Ireland and, of course, down in, down in the south. Um, So I I knew Jack well. I mean, he was always the one, the raconteur, sitting in the bar, you know, telling us all these stories about him wandering around Ireland. And and I had always said to him, you have got a fabulous life. You just wander from place to place. And Ireland's so beautiful and you're just driving up and down, not a care in the world. I said, I'm doing 500 cases a year and you're telling me you're doing 50. I said, when you go, I'm having your job. And... uh, so, so we'd always had this banter on and off. And he was, he used to come over to, to Glasgow. He was our uh an examiner for our students over there. And on one occasion, we'd sent somebody to go and pick him up at the airport. And of course, he had missed his flight. He was always <laughs> he never knew where Jack was going to be or what what was going to happen to him. And the, the, the taxi driver who was came back and said it wasn't there. And we were all going, oh, he'd missed the they missed the plane or whatever and he'll turn up eventually and he did turn he, he came on the next plane but of course he came into to Glasgow airport and said you know over to the policeman excuse me young man can you show me the way to Professor vanessas and the, the guy's going who who are you and, and what, what and he's going you must know Professor he's your forensic pathologist you must know the man and this poor policeman was thinking I've got a raving lunatic here talking about dead people and i should know all about this and eventually um somebody had had the sense to phone he told you know he didn't know the poor policeman didn't know what to do so he phoned his his station and said i've got a strange man here and he's he's looking for a friend the forensic department i don't know what to do with him." and the the police the police back in the station phoned our, our office and we said oh yeah we're looking for him so when jack came in and he said Nobody knows who you are to our professor who was affronted. You know, (laughs) It's just everybody in Ireland knows me. We were all going, yes, Jack, yes. yes." I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. And I didn't realise until I came over in 97 when um, I came over to have a look around when I was thinking about moving over there. And I get picked up at the airport by the Gardaí and I was going, this is very strange. And we're going, yeah, Jack's at the scene. He's just waiting for you. And I'm going, really? I'm going out to a c- scene? But well, you don't even know who I am. Because when I'd come into the airport that was over the tannoy, was, would Dr. Cassidy please come to the reception area? And I thought, oh, dear God, what have I got in my bags? What have I done? Well, I must have done something wrong. But then I realised and, and... You were getting the throughout, VIP throughout treatment. Day, yeah, and throughout that day, no matter where we went, walking down the street... Hi, Jack. Hi. And I was going, God, everybody does know him. And so, and everybody did know And And
2: that was uh, the Grange-Gorman murders that you yeah. were straight into that time. And eventually uh, he managed to persuade you to come and, and take the job. And one thing I really want to ask you about, because I know everyone on, on here will want to know about it too, is the difference between the... Um, interest in death let's say in Scotland and Ireland because you found it quite incredible our obsession with death and we're talking about the everyone here knows about the the old death notice you know who's dead you'll never guess who's dead and
1: all (laughs) that thing so tell us about your impression coming over to see all that well I come from Scotland I mean I come from a Catholic background of course an Irish Catholic background but the Scottish attitude is very Presbyterian really. And so you don't talk about death, you know, it it happens and you just go over it, you know, move on, you know, we'll deal with it and that's fine. But, you know, we don't discuss it and you don't go to anybody's funeral unless you're invited. It's invites only. So it's close family, friends, neighbours, maybe a push, depends on how the well they got on. And that's it. You never see a stranger at a funeral. If you do, somebody will go up and say, excuse me, what are you doing here? As happened at my mother's funeral, God God rest her, um, when somebody from the Department of Justice came to represent the department. And of course, that was the only person in the church that nobody knew. Mm. And so people were going up and going, who are you? And I was thinking, oh, God, poor Noel. (laughs) And I said, I told you, people don't just turn up. So when I came to Ireland, this fascination, you know, as you say, death notices. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody was talking about everybody dead. My secretary would, first thing in the morning, be going through, oh, oh, there's... I might have to take Wednesday off. I go, why? Oh, there's somebody dead in Common, And I go, and were you close to them? No, well, I don't know who they are, but they were just about two streets down, so I need to go. And I going. really? Really? So I it really perplexed me when I, when I came at first and the the media interest as well, because again, in Glasgow, I was used to, everything was undercover. You know, we found a body quick, get in there before anybody realizes that somebody's dead. So we'd be in and out and, you know, the the poor press were, you know, coming to the scene and, you know, mm -mm, you've missed it all again. They've all gone. And over in Ireland, You know, the the press were there, everything was being reported in great detail. And I just thought, really? Why, you know, (laughs) what is this obsession?
2: Well, it's funny because Lisa Joyce has just commented, I have to think of people like my nan, whose main hobby was heading to the dead house most evening to see who's dead. She knew everyone, so there'd always be someone to talk to while she waited to sympathise. How are people like her doing now, I wonder? And she says also, which is true, nobody does death like the Irish. Like we, we do do it very differently, don't we?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in our family, I mean, as I say, coming from the Catholic background, we would have the wake and all the rest of it. But that was quite unusual because um, particularly where where we where I lived, where I was brought up, it was not a very Catholic area. Um, by the time when we moved house the, the first time. And um, so having a wake was... You know, the neighbours would be saying, why are people traipsing in and out that house? And, you know, this is a bit strange, you know, for two or three nights. And they're all chanting away and, you know, doing strange things in there. So, that, that, as I said, so it wasn't the norm that, you know, the sort of the cat. We, we had a bit of that, but, you know, you had to do it, close it down and then, you know, forget about it. That's it. It's been and done. And I'm just sorry, just because you mentioned your mum and your mum's funeral there. And
2: Irene had said uh, that Mary speaks of her dad frequently. Um, but what about her mum and how much I was just interested in as well, how she shaped you, what you think you got from her? Because we, you heard about what
1: you got from your dad. A love of lipstick and shoes. <laughs> uh, my mother was, um, I, I mean, she was a, a force of nature. I mean, I, I'm very like my father in that I'm very, I, I'm the shy and quiet one in our family. Um, whereas my mother and my sister, in particular, she takes after my my mother very, very much, and because I think my mother used to think you're a bit dull, you know, <laughs> cannot not be more fun like your sister. And I'd be going really, and I go, but but I'm the intelligent one in the family, am I not? <laughs> there must be something good about me. Uh, no, my mother, I mean, and gosh, because of what the work I did, she was partly instrumental in bringing up my children because somebody had to be a responsible adult somewhere and she mm. was and she was fantastic and she as I say she looked after my kids very very well mm. um and and she came over when I moved over in 98 into Ireland she thought oh this is great I'm coming back to Ireland because her mother and father had left Ireland in the 1900s Early nineteen hundreds, and so she thought. Well, this is my chance to get back there. So she just moved back with me. So she was there with me to the bitter end. Oh, that's that's lovely. I'm um, just speaking of
2: your uh, move to Ireland, though. Your
1: your children weren't that keen to come. Oh, my daughter was distraught. I mean, she just couldn't understand why we were going to do it. She was going to lose all her family. She would never see her friends again. How would she survive? Kian, on the other hand, just said to me. How big is Dublin? And I said, well, it's a bit, it's not as big as Glasgow. It might be a bit bigger than Edinburgh. And he went, oh, well, it's probably easier to be famous there then. And I went, maybe. Have you anything in mind? And he went, not yet. <laughs> I thought, OK, you're fine. But I said, look, I'll do a deal with you. We'll go for a year. And then at the end of the year, we'll have a family meeting. And if you're still not happy, we'll come home. And she believed me. Bless her. Um, but at the end, of the lying year, to your child, Mary Cassidy. <laughs> I had my fingers crossed behind my back. That's allowed. Um, so at the end of the year, I said to Sarah, um, "Right, I promised you that we'd have a chat about this." I said, "So, do you want to go back to Glasgow?" And she went, "No. What? Why would Emily want to go back there?" Because she had got, she had discovered. Because we, she'd come from a little village school. We lived in a little village in the middle of nowhere, and there were thirty children at the whole school. Her first day at school in Ireland and Swords, there were thirty-two people in her class. She came home that night. She was so excited and knew every every name. I've got, I've got, I've got all these new friends. And and I was going, oh Lord, it didn't take you long to fit in. So it, they, I don't think they were too enamoured at the end you know, at the thought of it, but. At that age, you can move them, mm. um, and they did well, very well when they moved to Ireland.
2: Mary, talk to me about that because you mentioned uh, your child saying, "You know, can you be famous there? Is it easy to be famous?" You had to be, as we mentioned earlier, famous as the state pathologist, especially when you moved into that role. How did you deal with that? Because you you have, as we as I said at the introduction, dealt with some very high profile murders, and we'll talk about some of the cases. But the, the area of walking around, say in the supermarket, or just being in the world in Ireland,
1: with yeah. everybody kind of know, oh, that's your oh, there, she is now. How did you cope with it? I I I actually find it quite difficult because I'm te- I am a quite a shy person. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't. I honestly, I am. <laughs> uh, I'm the quiet one in the family. Wait, till you meet my sister? Good lord. I wouldn't we'll have her run another on another big night in. She sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> on. She could do the whole thing on her own. You wouldn't need anybody else in your audience. Uh, no, but I just find it very intrusive and I find it quite disconcerting that people, because I mean, it's like, I mean, if I met somebody at Coronation Street, I would go, oh, hello, because I would think I know them as well. And I think people just think they know me because I'm, you know, I've got a bit part on, a, you know, on a television show called The News. You know, they just see me pop up now and again. So you just assume they know me. But I just found it quite, as I say, quite disconcerting. So I tended to retreat into myself. And I'm sure there were people on my street who had never seen me in broad daylight. And when I left, they were all going, God, she lived in our street. We didn't even know. We knew we knew her husband. We knew all our, we knew our children, but we never saw her. She, you know, she, they must have kept her in the attic somewhere out of the out the way. I think that happens with all forensic pathologists, as we tend to just then, you know, retreat into the small group that we work with because it, it's a it's a strange thing to do, you know, it's a strange job. Um, and it's very difficult to talk about your job with people who don't understand. That we're not being ghoulish. We're just we're we're talking about it because we're interested in it and we find it fascinating.
2: Well, let's talk about one of the cases then, and maybe that's a way into talking about what your job actually involves. Because just from the start to the finish, because you're on call all the time, mm-hmm. you you write in the book about say being at home on Christmas Day, but knowing that you're not really at home because then you'll be listening to the news, and if there's a death, and you're going to have to go. Can we talk about Rachel O'Reilly? Because I just think in the pandemic, it's something that we've been covering a lot on the women's podcast. Uh, domestic violence is up. Mm-hmm. And as we know, uh, and in the UK, it's even higher. I think it's two a week in the UK of, of women being killed by men. And Rachel mm-hmm. O'Reilly is one of those cases that I think mm-hmm. was huge. Uh, and and uh, especially Joe O'Reilly then appearing on the Late Late Show. Take us, through, <clears throat> take us through something like that from when you've got the call and then maybe talk a bit about that case if you can.
1: Yeah, I mean... As I say, I always say every every case starts with a call. You know that that somebody unfortunately has been found in the circumstances which warrant um, full investigation, and the 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 post of the, of state pathologist means that um, you're dealing purely with deaths that are potentially homicides, eh, murders. Um, so you're you're dealing with you know every every time you get a call, you're having to think. This person could have been killed by someone else. My role is to go out and see if I agree with that. And if I do, then make sure that I find the cause of death. I get all of the evidence that all the trace evidence that might be needed. And so normally, in a particular case, that particular case, Everybody, you know, it's best to go to the scene and see the body where it is, because you sometimes then get a better sense of what might have happened. Um, I mean, as I say, I've been doing it for so long now. I mean, I've been doing it for years and years and I've, you know, seen thousands and thousands of bodies and I've walked through thousands and thousands of houses and fields and whatever it is that a body is. So you get a feel for it when you when you go in, you You immediately switch into the professional mode, and you start to to look about, and you're looking for anything that's going to assist you when you're when you come down to doing your examination. And so with that one, um, I can I, I still even remember driving out to that that scene. There's some things that I mean, one of the side effects of being a forensic pathologist is your head's just full of awful things, and um, which pop up every so now every so often, but you don't you don't forget cases. Um, and, and I do remember at that time it was a foul night and I remember driving out to it. And um, I had a couple of medical students with me at the time. And I'd said, look, there's a body being found um, the, the, the the guards are treating it suspicious. And they said, can we come out with you? And I said, well, you can come out, but I don't know if you'll be allowed in. I said, but we'll, we'll go anyway. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens when we get there. And by the time I got there, even as I drove in uh, up to the house, by the activity that was going on, even around the house with the guards, I knew this. This is this is something very serious because I, I would never ask on the phone what it was or what they thought because um, I didn't. I, I always like to just go and, and see it through my own eyes and not have somebody tell me what they think they've seen. So I like to just say, right, where do you want me to go? When do you want me to be there? And I'll go and I'll have a look and I'll see for myself. But as soon as I saw the activity around there, I thought, this is this is serious. And I said, look, and I said to the students, I said, look, stay in the car. I'll check and see what's happening. And as soon as I went out and spoke to the guards, I knew that this was, this was something that was something awful had happened. And I just went back to them. I said, you can't come in. We can't take the, the chance that, you know, even if you're there to help me and you're there to learn about this, we can't lose any information. We can't lose any evidence. And I just remember going into that house and just seeing it. And, and again, everybody had their theories and all the rest. But I just try not to listen to what's going on around about me. I try and shut that out. And I just focus on what I have to do. And as I say, my role is to, to look at the body and see what I can get from that, from the from the body, what information I can get that lets me know what happened to them in the few minutes or the few hours sometimes leading up to their death.
2: Mary, emotionally, it sounds like such a respectful job and such a um, I don't know that you're like you said, you have to sort of tell the story of what happened. So this person is dead and you are the person who's kind of having to give them the full respect and dignity of finding out how that end, how that transition from life to death, what happened there. Does that uh, responsibility bear on you very strongly or what's your philosophical almost approach to
1: that? role because it's a big thing. I know and and we're always aware that um, the, the decisions that we make at any step of the process um are going to have dramatic repercussions. So if I go in and I say um oh look I think this this looks as if it's probably an accident. Um, I know then that the guards will be going all oh, right so we can, we don't have the same urgency, but we'll, we'll do everything that we would normally do, but we don't have to do it now. You know, we can take our time and we can do things and make sure that everything is covered. But it's not that we're, we're looking for somebody. So we need to get out looking for a suspect. Whereas if I go in there and I go, oh, no, boys, I don't like the look of this at all. They know that, right, this is it. So, you know, Immediately, the guards are firing off instructions to people. You need to be doing this. You need to be doing that. So everything changed. So you, you always know that anything that you say is going to be taken down in evidence, used against you, <laughs> literally. Um, so you, you're always, you always have that weighing on you that you make might make the wrong call, and that's all of us suffer from that. And even up to the, t- uh, even up to just walking into court and going up to the witness box, I'm always still thinking, what if we have got it wrong? What if there's something else? What if there's another explanation for this? And so I'm always, I never say, well, that's it, done and dusted, you know, and I'm right. I never think that. I always think maybe somebody will come along and say, did you not consider something else? Or perhaps Perhaps you should have not listened to somebody else. And that's why I don't try, I try not to listen to somebody else and get their ideas in my head. I like to just yeah. start, go say, this is what I think. How does that fit with all of you other people in this team? I'm going to come
2: to talk about emotion because it's a few people are asking about it already and on Twitter as well. Hashtag IT Big Night In. So there's a couple of questions around it. Uh, Catherine is saying, how does Mary keep her emotions in check, not just walking into a scene, but afterwards? And then Alison is saying, how did you learn to switch off and keep work separate? So that's something that people are very interested in because uh, a lot of us have jobs where we're not having to come home having to leave stuff like we better not bring it home to our kids and stuff like that. But you do have a job like that. So was that something you were very determined about and very clear about from the beginning?
1: or You have to be able to do it. And I think that you would fail as a forensic pathologist if you couldn't turn off because it's not my job to be emotional. It's not my job to mourn the person. My job is there to do what I can for them and for their families and to make sure that um, I do the best I can for them. So I can't get involved in that. And that, is, as I say, it's, it's usually weeks, if not months afterwards, that I become emotional about a case. And that's usually when I meet the family, and that could be at an inquest or at court, and that could be a long time afterwards. But then I, then I see what they feel about it and how it's affected them. Because remember at the time I don't know this person. It's a tragedy that they've died, but I don't know them and I don't know their story. And I and at that time we we're just trying to piece together what happened to them in the last few minutes. So I, I I'm not burdened by that at that particular time that I know them well or I knew that they were a very good person that they did work for charity or you know they've got ten kids or whatever. I have so that that luckily at that stage that doesn't impinge on me and what I'm doing. So you, and you have to be able to just walk out and leave it behind, it park it, and if you can't do that, then you just you're getting too involved, and then you become invested in it, and then you start to start to you start to get involved in the police process. Really, it doesn't matter to me if once I've decided that somebody's been murdered. And I'm doing my post-mortem and I'm finding out all of this evidence. It doesn't matter to me who did it. That's for as a police matter. And sometimes I've seen forensic pathologists overstep the mark by saying, right, we've got to get this person. And I go, that's, no, 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 you've not got to get anybody. And they come out of court and they go, yes, that's another one I won. And I go, you haven't won anything. Um, you know, th- that's nothing to do with you. You go and you do your your business, which is post-mortem examination, get the cause of death, help them as much as you possibly can. But once you've handed that over, it's out of our hands what happens next.
2: This is a really good question that's come on in on Twitter. And if anyone wants to join in, hashtag ITBigNightIn. What was your most satisfying point in your career here, or the point when you felt you made the biggest difference to uh, the family of a person who died.
1: Oh, that's that's a tricky question. Um, I think when I when I came over at first, um, I, I was you know sort of trailing behind Jack Harbison, and everybody was used to him. He was larger than life, but I had come from the UK, and. Um, When I came in in 1985, in the middle of the the 80s to the end of the 80s, there suddenly was an influx of younger people coming in. I mean, okay, I was the youngest at 30, but we're all in our 30s. And we suddenly had come into forensic pathology and attempted to to modernize it. And Jack was always over in Ireland, and we all knew him and we knew him well. and And I know, but he was having to work on his own. And it's very, very difficult then to try and change systems and try and improve systems when you're just on your own and you're just literally, I mean, how he did it, I don't know, because he just went from case to case and he was lecturing, he was doing all sorts of things that now five people are doing, you know, uh, and he did it. And without, uh, you know, without complaining, he just got into his car and off he would go. Um, And so what I think what I think I did best when I was in Ireland was that I I, I laid the foundations for a modern forensic department. And I, I then started to look at having being more involved as part of a team rather than being the, the lone ranger, which Jack was, because he just literally went from one case, and then he would pack up his little briefcase and off he would go to the next one. And so he never really, he, he, he was always this, wonderful imposing figure who would come in and and do his bit and then disappear off whereas I I felt no this this should be more I I want to give more and I want to be part of the team and I want you to use me and and you know not just sort of keep me for the very special cases I said look I can do you know if you've got any case at all any death that there's any worry at all you know just call me and I think the, the guards over a period of time got used to that change in the system and I think they welcomed it. And I think that was the best thing that I did was to try and change it so that it became more all inclusive and that um, the guards weren't, because a lot of them were a bit afraid of Jack because he was, <laughs> I mean, it was a wee bit, you know, and he was, I mean, I just loved him to death um but to i, death. I, I, I <laughs> another scottish saying i love you to death um but i just i and i would see him saying some things to some of the guards and i knew he was pulling their legs but they didn't know that and i'd be saying jack you shouldn't really do that these poor young guys i said that man'll never sleep again and he certainly will never come near a mortuary again yeah um but, but Mary before we get on to questions from everyone I just want to know what other case
2: sticks out for you there was that uh, case very very sad where the husband had faked the suicide of of the woman can you talk a bit about that
1: yeah I mean I, I mean there's been a been a few of those kind of a cases in, in Ireland where um uh, there's I mean uh, there's a, a couple of well-known ones um but yes I mean there's always a fear and particularly with with cases that are slightly unusual, that they, we might miss a murder. And I find those cases the most intriguing. You know, if somebody's been stabbed 20 times or they've been shot three times, we you know, that, that we know what we're dealing with right from the start. But sometimes there are cases which, you know, that you don't really, you're not, not the guards are usually not quite sure what they're dealing with. And again, that's, that's that was the beauty of when I came in, I said, look, Anything at all, just phone me. I don't mind at all. And with that case, I got the phone call saying, we think we've got a suicide, but it's just something strange about it. And I said, okay, right. I've seen lots of suicides, so I'll go along and have a look and see if I agree with you. And I went in and I said, oh, I agree with you. This isn't quite right. Larry was going but what's wrong with it and I was going nobody could say what was wrong but we always we were all in agreement something not quite right and those are the cases that you never know what's going to unfold and with and a lot of the time people assume that as a, as a pathologist I'm the, the key person and I'm not just part of the team and and sometimes you have to be the person who says actually I'm not the one that you need here. I'll, I'll do my bit, but you need another expert in here. You need to bring the forensic scientists in here. They need to be doing this. They need to be working on something. Um, and so, Sorry, just case, to tell people, that's Siobhan
2: Carney because I hadn't mentioned yeah. her name. That's the the case that we're talking about. Yeah, where,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, and I mean for that case, it was everybody was 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 unsure of what happened. But as I say, when I saw Siobhan in that room, and I thought it's just it's just not right and of course once I did my post-mortem I said oh this this <laughs> no and you know because the, the guards are always waiting and they, they sit there outside the the, the the post-mortem room waiting to see what's going to happen And every so often somebody will stick their head in and go is she finished yet Has she got what she got to tell us and that's when I came out and I went Mm-mm, this is a murder I'm sorry boys yeah. but this definitely is and then I I And then I have to go through, and this is why I think it is, because, yes, there are features that I agree with you, could have been suicide, but these other features tell me, no, this is not, this is somebody. I said, either somebody unwittingly has moved this body or or interfered with the evidence. I always leave it open, I said, or somebody has tried to make this look like something it's not. Mm. So we had, so that was one, and then we had um, Mary Whelan as well. Um, where the husband had tried to make it look as if she'd fallen down the stairs. And again, she had been strangled. So mm. the thing is that um, I'm not saying that we're so wonderful. We will always find the answer, but there's always usually something, um, no matter how clever people are. Um, we're just that one we step ahead. Well, speaking really of was. which, Mary,
2: one of the things that got you into trouble early on in your career was you did a talk saying how to commit the perfect murder. And, uh, People didn't like that. And you ended up on the cover of the sun. You
1: got into trouble. (laughs) I know. I thought, do these people have no no sense of humour at all? (laughs) Uh, Yes, I thought that was hysterical. I mean, I do sometimes tend to say things that do get me into a little bit of trouble. It was the same with Stab City for Limerick. And I was just quoting what I had been told. And I had just said, oh, I'll get into trouble again. But I had said that Limerick had proved to be a big disappointment to me because I was told it was Stab City, and it was nowhere near as bad as Glasgow, um, and it wasn't. Um, so it was a misnomer. Um, we love all our Limerick people, and we don't think it's Stab City, do we, Mary?
2: Not. No, we don't. Not. Now there is a lot of stuff in your book about maggots, and I know I know if you've all had your dinner, we we don't have to go into it too much, but I find it fascinating that. I I'm sorry to go into maggots now after my nice bit of talk, <laughs> but the fact that that helps you a lot with sort of timing, you know when the pupae, the larvae, and all that sort of yeah. stuff. You know how long something
1: is. Can a little bit of that, a little bit of maggoty talk, before we open it up to questions. Well, I mean, again, it's one of these things that's just so intriguing, and I mean because. I mean, everybody talks about time of death. And if you're you're like me and you read all these crime thrillers and all the rest of it, there's always the forensic pathologist will say, oh, he died at 10 past seven. And I always say, hire them because I can't do that. I can't tell you when somebody died. And we've tried, I mean, and to to be fair, we've tried, the forensic pathology community has tried and tried and tried to find this piece of, of evidence that will tell us exactly when somebody died. And we still don't know. And we start, you know, we've used all sorts of things. But when it comes down to somebody who's been dead for a few days or a few weeks or a few months, then even even being able to to class, you know, sort of shrink down the time frame to, well, they maybe have been dead for two weeks rather than, you know, sort of six weeks, is is the only way we can do it is by looking to see if any wildlife has done anything to them and landed on them. And it's amazing that a fly can be attracted to to someone, you know, seconds after they die you know they're they're literally they can smell this change this chemical change and they Mm. come swooping in and lay their eggs and we can actually use that information by taking these little maggots and growing them and to see what they turn out to be and then looking at the size of them and the and I can't do it. It's not my job. It's the entomologist who does that. And it's I'm so
2: sorry clever. I brought it up now. Stop talking about them. Fiona is the same as me. Fiona, I can see you. You're like me going, oh, <laughs> stop. Um, we do have one blue hand up, Suzanne, do we? Yes, we do. We have Suzanne Rice. Hey, guys. Um, I'm Suzanne. I'm in California uh, today.
1: Oh.
0: Um, a question for you, Mari. I had the opportunity to go to an autopsy a couple of years ago. And I know nothing about biology, all right. And I was fascinated to know what was going to happen. The large intestine is huge. It just kept coming out. It was like bloody a roll of sausages. You know? so in your first autopsy, what was the most fascinating body part that you saw?
1: Uh, my first autopsy, I mean, I made a complete hash of it. Absolute hash of it. Um, and it took me all day. I mean, nowadays, you know, I, I, I would take me 20 minutes to do that kind of a, a case. And I, I had no inkling of what I was doing. And you were—I knew all the organs. And I knew, but this time I had had sorted out where what order they were in and where they were all lying. But I mean, the cause of death in that my first case was, you know, pulmonary embolism, where this this person had had a clot in the legs that had broken off and gone there. But I didn't know that. And I sat and picked all of this clot out of the lungs and thought, I'm doing a great job clearing this this man's lungs out, you know and I had no idea at all but and when my when my consultant came in and said looked in the sink and he said what's that and there?" I said that was blocking his lungs for goodness sake so I've cleared it all out and he went that's what killed him and I went "All oh, right, now I get it now I get it. Well, Suzanne, I
2: it thank you very much and also Suzanne I'm loving your um large intestine actions that was excellent we've, one, we've another blue we've another blue hand don't we Suzanne do we we do and we have another Sue Mary, I know you said that um, you have a certain job to do and that when you do that and you hand over, you know, your evidence. But I just wondered, is there ever a case where, you know, you were absolutely convinced that it was murder and the evidence is handed over, but you learn later that, you know, they just couldn't get a conviction? Like, is there any ever times when you get really frustrated because the justice for this person, you know, feel got done?
1: Yeah, I, I and, it, and it happens and it happens more often than you, than you would know because, the, the, the general public don't get to hear about these cases unless they go through court. And there's a, many times where things just don't make the grade to get get into court. And I think a lot of people do feel frustrated. I, I've always said that, and I, and I always say it to the guards when we're, when we're working together, we just do our best. We get the information we have, and then we have to hand it over. And we have, to, it's other people who have to make the decision whether they think there is enough or not. But there's many a time I've come out and I've, I've heard, you know, the, the jury coming back and I'm going, hmm, I wonder if that was the right verdict, but again, nothing to do with me. And when I speak to families, again, people talk about justice, but families want different things. You know, family don't always want somebody to be, you know, sort of be jailed for something some of them just want to get the information some people just want to to hear a little bit about them and want to get some recognition for their life and their death and so I was when I speak to families I always say I hope you get out of this what what you're looking for because mm-hmm. I never know what 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 they're going to what what they're what they're seeking when we get to court and as I say sometimes they must be mighty disappointed but Unfortunately, that's the justice system. There's a
2: really good question here um, from Caroline. It says, has Mary any sense that uh, a woman pathologist has different intuition to a man? Or have you ever gone down that road? Do
1: you think you've brought something to it as a woman? I think as women, we do. And I think what's happening now is that more and more women are coming into it. Um, it it's, as I say, it's unfortunate that we're struggling to find people, but... Women are beginning to see it as a as an as an option because as I say beforehand it didn't really have much of a, a reputation, and now beginning beginning to see that we worked very hard over the last twenty years, especially trying to to improve the the image of it. And um, but women are very good at modern forensic pathology, I think, because we are happy to be part of a team. We don't have to be the big central figure, so we work well in a team, and I think that's that's part of it uh, but i think women have got a bit of intuition and a bit of a feeling for things that um I, you know I've, I've worked with a lot But the best compliment i can give this is sounds very sexist but all of my male colleagues know the best thing i could ever say to them is oh you're working like a woman and i do and i just and i say that to them yeah. and they take it like a compliment yeah oh yeah yeah and it is a compliment. Of course <laughs> it is. It's the best compliment you... I can give them, you know? <laughs> That is fantastic. Now, just before
2: we go, because we are a bit over, but I just, I can sense, and if you're not rushing off to, I don't know, do some urgent thing. I know you like the ballet. There's no ballet on, so you can't go after that. that. Um, listen, it's about crime writing because Ireland is obsessed a bit with crime writing. And also we're wondering, do you think that's to do with our death obsession, a bit of that? Is that why we're so into the crime writing? And also... What books do you like to read? Do you like crime yourself or do you run a million miles away from it?
1: Oh, no. I mean, uh, I think you're, you're right in that um, because of such an appetite for death, that's why crime novels do very well here because, I mean, everybody loves a good murder. Um, so uh, from the point of view, of, um, I I read all of them and it's dreadful and that's because I was I was doing some in a book club and they were saying to me you know have a look at any you know your recent books and it made me look and I was thinking oh my heavens all I'm doing is reading about crime I mean (laughs) have I become an obsessive all of a sudden because I'm not actually doing it I'm having to read about it and I thought well I really must branch out and try and get get a few new new genres in there but um, yeah no it's it's I can understand why people enjoy it. Are you going to write one, Mary? Well, you know, I might have a go. Why
2: not? Excellent. And then finally, we'll just do a real final thought here. You've been so close to people's deaths. What are your thoughts on death? What happens
1: when we die, Mary Cassidy? We go. (laughs) I don't know where we go. (laughs) It might just be a big hole in the ground or the angels may come and lift us away. I have no idea. I'm just keeping my feet in any camp at all and hoping for the best.
2: (laughs) And so say all of us, I think. Um, I'm so delighted and so grateful for all the work you did over all those years in this country. Um, Such difficult, sensitive work that you made such a difference to people um, in life and in death. And we all want to say thank you to you. And maybe you'll Write a crime novel and we'll have you on another big night. And that would be brilliant. (laughs) Final
1: words from you there. Oh, I'd just like to say thank you. And I hope everybody sleeps peacefully tonight. (laughs) Yeah, the maggot didn't help, but that was my fault. Bye, everyone.
0: That's all we have time for. My thanks again to Mary Cassidy. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Keep in touch with us on social at It Women's Podcast or by email the women's podcast at Irish Times. Enjoy the rest of this very strange weather and don't melt and we'll talk to you next time.